Hello, this is Ellen Goldsmith, and welcome to Health Currents Radio. This is a special summer show about children and nutrition with Kelly Dorfman. According to the American Medical Association, obesity, asthma, allergies, behavior and learning problems, as well as other chronic health conditions, increased 14% in children between 1994 and 2006. Are you a parent whose child isn't being helped with visits to the doctor or medication? Well, that's when parents end up in the office of Kelly Dorfman, licensed nutritional dietitian who lives outside of Washington, D.C. Kelly Dorfman is a nutrition detective and one of the world's foremost experts on using nutrition therapeutically to improve brain function, energy, and mood. She works collaboratively with other medical professionals to help people develop creative strategies to address complex ailments and symptoms. Her award-winning book, Cure Your Child with Food, The Hidden Connections Between Food and Childhood Ailments, was reissued by Workman Press in June 2013. Publishers Weekly offered this review. This fascinating and potentially life-changing advice reveals that nutrition isn't a simple matter of finishing one's broccoli. Food has a significant impact on a child's health and well-being, and Dorfman helps parents ensure that the impact is positive. As a go-to expert on nutrition issues, Kelly is frequently featured in articles in the Wall Street Journal, Parade, and Bethesda magazines, among others. Look for her column about supplements in Living Without magazine or her Huffington Post blog. Kelly Dorfman, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. You call yourself a nutrition detective. What does that mean to someone coming in to see you? Well, it means that we're going to see if there are any connections between what they're eating, uh, whether intake or supplements or even what they're drinking, and their health condition. And sometimes there are, and of course, sometimes there aren't. But I think that people think of nutrition as the course of last resort. And I'm hoping to move that to the top of the list so that they think about nutrition and what they eat and consume as one of the first possibilities in terms of cause of what might be ailing them. So, I mean, people do come to you sometimes as the last resort. I think in your book, you're actually called the last resort uh, person to come to. And, and that's when a child comes in and their medical tests show nothing is grossly abnormal on tests. And, and they have problems from ear infections to, to emotional or cognitive issues. And you talk about how the child is either reacting to a food, which could be irritating the condition, or the child isn't getting enough of something. Can you explain what this process is and why it's so important? Absolutely. Well, actually, I call myself a resort nutritionist. And then when people say, which resort, you know, you wryly say the last one. <laughs> because it's after they've been going to many doctors and sometimes there's been a lot of expensive and painful tests that have been run. And, and hopefully everything terrible has been ruled out. So the question is, why is the child still suffering? And I broke that down into two categories because nutrition sounds like it can be very complicated, but really everything comes down to are you eating something that's bothering you or are you missing something that could help you in terms of targeted nutrition therapy? And so we look through uh, symptoms that could fall in either of those categories. And then it's a process of trial and I call it terror, trial and terror to figure out uh, what it is that's uh, the issue. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart because most people are depending on other professionals to jump in and take care of things. And this is a very proactive approach where parents, especially if we're working with children, 
or you yourself, if you're working with an adult, have to jump in and become an active participant in your health care. Right. So we're really talking about uh, habits that may die hard. Well, yes. And also you have to dig into things that you're doing and sometimes keep some records so you can figure out what the trail might be. So for example, if you're looking to see if something's bothering you, the body tends to send you signals that tell you something's bothering me. For example, your skin could be irritated. You could be getting sick a lot and having immune issues. You could be having stomach problems. I mean, these are all ways that your body says, hey, something's bothering me. Right. And, and a lot of times people don't make that connection. So you, you seem to serve as, as a, a liaison between reality, you know, in terms of food, what's happening, what you're eating and, and how it's affecting your body. Because most people don't think about that. They think, well, I just eat pretty well. You know, I have a sandwich, I have a salad, I have some cheese for protein, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't think, well, there's a problem there. That's true, but in a way, it's darn obvious. And I got to be honest with you, most people, once you start talking about it, they're not shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, they say, well, I thought perhaps fill in the blank was bothering me, but then I asked my husband, doctor, fill in another blank, and they said no, or I read an article on Dr. Google, and that said no, and so I thought that wasn't it. But it's, it's rare when people seem to be floored and shocked that it could be something they're eating, because when you think about it, especially with the gastrointestinal symptom, what you're eating certainly should be affecting how your gut's working. What, yes, absolutely. And, and what's really interesting is in the book, you talk about how your gut's working also then starts to affect your emotional state and your behavioral state as well. Yes, and, and I did not develop that. There's actually a new field of medicine that's not actually even that new anymore called neurogastroenterology, which is how the gut affects the brain. And they call the gut the second brain because you make a lot of chemicals in your gut that actually act on the brain. Most people are are familiar with serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter associated with good mood. And it's the thing that SSRI drugs, Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa raise. And you make 95% of that in your gut, even though it acts in your brain. So if you're eating a food that's irritating your gut, are you then interfering with that process or... Yeah, yeah, that's just the process, one of the many processes that we know about. There are dozens of gut neuropeptides. I just picked that one because it's the most familiar to most people, but there are many, many of them. And so absolutely, uh, you can be eating something that's bothering you. It can disrupt this whole system, and that can send out signals that affect the brain function, and that can be mood, that can be energy, that can be um, clear thinking, all kinds of things. So when when you're working with these irritants, with, with the people that come to see you, how long do you say to them, look, you need to do this, quote, closed experiment for how long for that people to really notice a difference? I think you have to commit to at least a month. And that's really the bare minimum. Sometimes a little bit longer, like six weeks is uh, even better. But if you ask people to do it too long, uh, most of us don't have the patience for long trials. But the reason I say a month, especially with children, is because you know how life gets when you have a bunch of kids. Oh, grandma's visiting. Oh, you know, Jonathan got sick. Oh, there's a school picnic. And there's always this disruptive stuff. So you need enough time to see the trend, apart from all the the stuff that happens in life. So you're really talking about you know, if there's some improvement and then perhaps, you know, grandma comes over and gives you a cracker or gives you a bunch of cheese, whatever, and all of a sudden you start to notice those symptoms again, it, it's a way to just calibrate. 
well, the problem is if grandma come, comes over and there's a lot of other commotion and maybe it wasn't just the cracker, maybe it was a couple of uh, starbursts and you know, right. six, six cups of ice cream. I mean, who knows? And then the question is, was it the crackers or was it because we went to the park and we stayed out all night? You know, or, you know it could be a hundred type things. And so you want enough time to see uh, the different kinds of trends because this isn't a laboratory where you can you know, lock the child up and starve them of everything except the thing you're testing <laughs> right. and have no other outside influences and then see the clear result. You, life is constantly interfering and throwing in you know, dirty kind of science to, to muck up the experiment. And so, we're, yeah, we're trying to see trend over a long enough period that we can say, I, I do think that Sam is, you know, 50% better. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you talk about, there are these big four that you talk about in the book, gluten, dairy, sugar, and soy. Um, and, and probably you added in corn there as well, just because of the GMO aspect coming in to our lives so intensively. And uh, they really seem to be wreaking havoc on on children, I mean the the high, higher incidence of allergies, of GI problems, of behavioral issues, of ADD, ADHD, these kinds of things. I mean, these are foods that people have eaten for centuries, and yet in the past twenty years, we've seen this huge rise in in issues from them. Why? What do, What do you think? Well, since I wrote the book, I actually um, have developed a new theory. Well, I didn't develop the theory, but. Uh, this became uncovered by some MIT researchers. Uh, one of them was Stephanie Seneff, who I've been uh, in contact with. And because uh, that is starting to bother me, I'll be honest with you, Ellen. I don't like that uh, wheat, which is really the staff of life, is almost non-tolerated anymore. I mean, it's, it's gotten so bad that some doctors are calling it mass hysteria. And increasingly, corn is an issue. I just got a, an email from a doctor this morning from Los Angeles, and, and he said, well, you forgot to talk about how bad corn is. Well, 20 years ago, I almost never saw corn reactions, and now I constantly see them. So the question is, is this food just all bad, or are we doing something to the food? And what Stephanie and her colleagues said is that it's not the corn, it's not the wheat, it's, it's the glyphosate. Now, And what is that? Glyphosate is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. And Roundup is the most popular herbicide in the world. And they started this process about six or seven years ago called dry harvesting. And what this is, is that three or four days before it's time to harvest the wheat, they spray it with glyphosate or Roundup. This kills the wheat and makes it very convenient to clean up and harvest. So it's a very time-saving and money-saving operation. However, the residuals of the Roundup or glyphosate um, are all over the wheat because it just happened a couple days before harvesting. So the, the new wheat now is loaded with herbicide, loaded with it. Corn is full of herbicide. Um, they tested, this laboratory tested Enfamil, infant formula, and found it had glyphosate residues in it. And that's full of, of course, um, corn syrups, solids. And I think, and so corn is full of glyphosate because uh, it's not killed when they spray the Roundup on it because of the GMOs. The corn can survive the spraying, but there's still the residues. So they think the reason we can't figure out why so many people are reacting to gluten and we keep on looking at gluten to see what's wrong with the gluten molecule is because unless you have celiac disease, it's not the gluten molecule, it's the herbicide. 
and the symptoms of the herbicide exposure are very similar to the neurological and GI symptoms that we see with gluten intolerance. Wow, this is terrifying because that stuff isn't going away. No, as a matter of fact, it's it's getting worse and worse, and uh, it's. Um, I'm not even sure what to do with it. You can order organic and you can get flour from other countries. And that's when I started uh, getting suspicious because people would come back from their European vacations in the summer or visiting relatives in Croatia or France, and they'd say, you know, we ate croissants over there. We were fine. And we came back home. We were sick as dogs. And we, what's the deal? That's right. I hear that a lot. Yes, and I don't. It's, and I started thinking maybe this isn't an accident. Why is American wheat a problem? Well, this is an American phenomena. Although apparently they're doing this to some extent in England also. So buying organic is one way to kind of try to sidestep it a little bit. Right. Well, you find you, you kind of clean it out with a trial and see if it makes a difference, and then you can try as a second trial to add organic wheat back in and see if that is tolerated. And you've also seen articles probably about heirloom wheat and some of these other wheats, and people seem to be fine with that. Well, if the problem was gluten, they shouldn't be. Right. These are, are heirloom wheats are things like einkorn, farro. Right. Things that were grown and have not been altered very much genetically, but they're also, they tend to be grown without this kind of herbicide problem that uh, we're looking at. I mean, it's a crazy thing to do. We're going to kill the wheat and then basically sell dead herbicide laced wheat. I mean, it's like, it's so, so nutty that it, it, people have a hard time believing it, but it certainly would explain why over the last handful of years, suddenly this wheat intolerance has hit um, an absolute epidemic proportion. Absolutely. And there was a startling uh, case you gave in the book of a, a young girl whose um, emotional behavior was, was just off the charts in terms of kind of tantrums and aggressive and, you know, ups and downs, really extreme up and downs. And when you took the gluten out, it all went away. Yeah, I wish that was an exception, but I see a case like that, at least one or two cases a month. And since the book, people write to me from all over the world and tell me about cases like that. There was an article written in uh, an Anchorage, uh, Alaska paper by a woman who thought that my book was kind of nutty, but she was so desperate because her child was behaving so poorly that she tried the diet anyway and was stunned when all the behaviors went away. Wow, to save children from going on to uh, medication, for, you know. You could just go to food first. You could try food first. It's, it's less invasive. Well, not only that, but if the problem really is the food, then you have to medicate them until they're practically zombies in order to stop the behavior because you're not really going after the underlying problem. Right. So we're talking about the underlying cause here. Exactly. You know, I was, I, I'm an acupuncturist. I work with my patients, and I always tell them, you know, food is the hardest and it's the easiest. It's the hardest because it's a hard habit to change. And, you know, just based on our own personal habits, culture, family, all those things, and life itself. But if it helps your problem, you go, wow, that was so simple. And it offers you an opportunity to change your life, really. And I think that once you get it cleaned up, then we have to all band together and start getting very serious about food safety issues, because this is nuts. I mean, we, we should be safe for most people. Mm-hmm. And, and corn should be safe for most people. These are We can't all become paleo eaters because there's 7 billion people on the planet. We can't support uh, that many people not eating grain. I mean, grain is something that's necessary to sustain human life at this level on the planet. So we better have safe stuff. So when you're saying food safety issues, how could people band together and uh, really 
pay attention to that and do something about it? Well, I think the first step would be passing some GMO laws, and that's been very hard. You know, Washington State and, and California both tried, and they said up to 80 percent of people wanted GMO labeled, and yet when it came down to a ballot vote, they voted against their own self-interest because they were told it would make the food really expensive and all this and that. And, and it's, it's not a food... To be honest with you, we are not sometimes paying the full price of food because if you're not looking at how you're hurting the environment down the road, um, then the food seems like it's cheaper. So to some extent, it is true that food is a little bit more expensive when you pay attention to the full cost of raising it uh, without burning you know, the, the environment on the way. And so if you go to Europe or some of these other countries, you'll notice that food as part of the income is a higher percentage than it is here because people are used to paying a little bit more food for properly, I mean money for properly raised food. And we, we have to get that concept across here. I think you, you vote with your dollars. I mean, you start insisting on only buying that stuff and then suddenly they want to produce it. And I think if Whole Foods comes through in 2018 and will only sell stuff that's labeled, whether it has GMOs or not, then um, that would be a game changer. But I, I'm doubtful that they'll be able to pull it off. Mm. It, it sounds, have you seen yourself just personally and professionally evolve from working just simply around changing diet, food a little bit, adding in supplementation, to really connecting this to kind of the global and environmental issues that are really rearing their ugly heads? Well, I think that uh, the trouble with taking people off of um, foods, that's fixing the problem at the end of the river. So we're, we're pulling people out of the river, right? Right, right. But at some, at some point, we have to fix the river. Yeah. And um, so we're not having to pull so many people out of it. And that's always been a concern of mine all the way through. But unfortunately, it's hard as a single person to, to change the river. You need to get a critical number of people upset enough about it that we can make a shift. And I don't think politically that's going to happen by following the rules and passing legislation. You know, nothing is getting passed. Um, it, the, all the things that we're supposed to do to make this happen aren't happening. So we're going to have to come up with a new way that's going to shake this up because the companies aren't going to behave uh, just because we asked them to. I mean, they just, they just have too much money and, and people are just not banded together enough. So we have to come up with something new and I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I'm interested in helping out in that effort. I hope everybody else and your listeners are interested too. We have to do something. This has gotten to a nutty proportion. It has, absolutely. And I'm, I'm with you on this. It, it really is, eating is like a political act almost. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it really, you have really, we really have to make statements with our food so that we support not just our, our own health and our family's health and our community's health, but the planet and future generations as well. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the simple aspect of nutrition and food, I, I wanted to just bring on the, the second part you talk about when you work with people, which is what's missing. Um, because you know, as most people feel like, well, if I just change my food, then I should be okay. But if something is missing, um, and you talk a lot about zinc, choline, and essential fatty acids, and uh, you know, how do these, and I think parents may not understand, people may not understand that those nutrients can be really low if they feel like their kid is eating a quote, unquote, normal kind of diet. Or maybe a white diet is, is very often with a normal diet. And, and I could have picked magnesium or vitamin A or vitamin E or a number of other nutrients um, that are low. It's just that you have to concentrate on something. But um, 
I think the mag magnesium and zinc are are good nutrients to pick on just because they tend to be very low in a white diet. And by white diet, I mean a refined diet that has a lot of white flour and white sugar and even milk to some extent, which is low in both magnesium and zinc. So magnesium is found in beans and greens. And we all know that that's, those are low ticket items in most people's diet. And um, zinc is found in meat. So that is sometimes covered better, but it's also bullied out uh, in when it's, there's a lot of exposure to toxic metals like lead and, and arsenic and mercury, which has been another issue uh, with kids and developmental issues. So they're at-risk nutrients. They're very much at-risk nutrients. And so sometimes when kids are very picky eaters in particular, we can say, oh, let's eat lots of beans and greens, but that's not going to be happening. And so you close the gap between what the child's willing to eat and what you need them to eat using supplements. And uh, with zinc, this is particularly important because it's a catch-22 with zinc. When your zinc gets low enough, things start smelling and tasting funny. And um, I call this altered taste. I mean, I've heard many, many stories of kids who are sitting in the kitchen and literally retching or gagging as their, their dad or mom is stir-frying the onions for dinner because the smells are just so overwhelming to them. Or they complain that food tastes in, in very exaggerated, horrible ways. And the parents think that they're super tasters, but in fact, I have uh, tasted them blind, so they have no other cues to know what something's supposed to taste like, and they actually have altered taste, and they don't taste things accurately. Wow. How do, how do, you, how do they describe that? Well, what happens is I use a zinc sulfate solution, which doesn't have a smell or color to it, and there's no other texture cues or you know packaging cues. You just put it in a glass next to a glass of water, and you ask them to taste it, and it has a very distinct taste to it. And, um, and they think it tastes like water. And so um, basically they're using other cues to, um, to figure this out. Other cues being? Oh, the package, the, um, the tell from the parents. I mean, picky eaters are very funny. I don't know if you have read about tells, but tells are things that you do that you don't know you do that give away um, clues about something. So very often if parents are trying to sneak a food in something, they'll, they'll, they'll cock their shoulder a certain way or squint their eyes funny or be overly <laughs> pleasant or something that are a, a gigantic tell to the kid that something bad's going to happen. And most of these kids won't even touch the food. And the parents are always surprised. Like, well, you know, they, they knew they wouldn't even taste it because <laughs> they saw it coming a mile away. And uh, they said, no way, Jose, am I going to taste whatever's in that thing? So, um, and so, so many times it's things that have nothing to do really with the food itself. A lot of kids don't like foods they've never tried. So, yeah, so we give them zinc and then all of a sudden their taste gets a little bit more accurate. And then they find that they're, we find they're willing to try things. We find that things aren't so offensive to them. Uh, things this don't smell so bad. And that can be very helpful. That's really an interest, uh, interesting because zinc is kind of a, you know, an undersung hero, you know, in terms of vitamins and minerals. You know, we think about vitamin A, vitamin B, and all of those things. So that's a, a very important thing for parents to be aware of if their child is a picky eater, sounds like. I wanted to talk about essential fatty acids because that seems to be play a key role in reversing uh, chronic health issues uh, such in, in terms of ADHD and behavioral issues, even constipation, et cetera. Could you talk about the role of essential fatty acids in brain development and health? Right. Well, there's essential fatty acids and there's long chain fatty acids. Um, and uh, the essential fatty acids are this 
fatty acids you have to get in your diet or you'll get a nutritional deficiency symptom. And uh, there's two of those. There's alpha-linolenic acid and gamma-linolenic acid. And there are specific symptoms you get if you don't get enough of these, like you get um, wax buildup in your ears and dry skin and uh, excessive thirst or sometimes not enough thirst or any combination of those symptoms. And um, the dry skin often stop, starts behind the arm. It's like chicken skin. I don't know why it starts back there, but it does. But it can be anywhere. It can be in the face or the trunk or the legs. And um, the long-chain fats are the kind of fats that are found in fish. And these are made from essential fats. And it turns out that the brain prefers these long-chain fats. And you may have heard of DHA and EPA, because those are the two that are found in fish. So... Um, 25% of the brain is DHA, and the studies have found that kids with some of these diagnoses of learning disabilities and ADHD and autism have low levels of the essential fats, which convert to these long-chain fats and or these long-chain fats, depending on the study. And what a lot of us think is that uh, kids with learning disabilities and mood problems and ADHD and autism, even if they eat the right kind of fats, they're not very good at converting them to the kind of fats that your brain likes. So it's better just to give those fats directly. So giving us a supplement, you mean? Yeah, giving, or, or and it's ironically, it's safer to give uh, fats from fish, like EPA and DHA, as a supplement than it is to eat the fish, because the fish is full of mercury and PCBs and stuff. And when they make the supplements, they clean all that out. So when, when a parent is out there looking for a good quality um um, essential fatty acid for their child? What what should they look for? Well, uh, again, uh, there's, uh, not to nitpick, but there's a distinction between the long-chain fats, which are EPA and DHA, and the essential fats, which are found like in barrage oil and, and flaxseed oil and that kind of thing. Um, I tend to use the fish oil more because the brain uses, I mean, the brain likes DHA, 25% of the brain is DHA, and these fats work like bricks in a wall. They're basically structural nutrients. They become part of your brain. And so it's easier if you give it the brick already made. And since DHA is the kind of brick your brain likes, it's nice to put that in just the way it is. So I tend to use more fish oil than essential fats in kids. Got it. So then when a parent's looking out there, they should really buy a good quality fish oil for their child. A good quality fish oil. And there's a lot of uh, the them on the market right now. The Consumer Labs, which is a for-profit group that looks at these things, had tested a, a number of them. And they basically are mercury-free. I think there was only one off-brand that I'd never used that was a problem. So this is not the place that you go to the bargain basement and get the two for $10 discount bin. Uh, this is something where you want to get one that is from a company like Nordic Naturals or um, uh, Carlson's or a place that specializes in fish oil and has a long reputation for having a clean product. And then, but mostly for kids, the issue is going to be getting it in because unless you've started your child before age three on f uh, grandma's fish oil, which is the kind of smellier traditional stuff, it's, it's hard to get them to take that off a spoon. That's right. It is. I have a child. I know it. <laughs> so there's a couple of ways to get around that. Uh, there are there are the traditional fish oils, and they put some lemons or strawberries in, and, and sometimes that helps. But then there's a couple of companies that have tried a different approach. One company uh, called um, Omega Cure, and they super distill 
the official. And by the way, I have no financial ties with any of these people, so it doesn't really matter to me which one you get. It's just that it's if you can't get it in, what good is it, right? Um, and they they super distill it. Um, they're at omega3innovations.com, and they distill and distill and distill until you get this golden oil that has almost no fish flavor at all, and that could be mixed in some oatmeal or yogurt or peanut butter or applesauce, and the kids don't even know it's there. Mm, that's a great solution. Yeah, and that, that, that's one possibility. And then another one is there's other companies like Core Omega and Barleen's, and they've gone the opposite direction where they've super flavored the fish oil and made it into a pudding texture so that it, it tastes like, uh, like, well, one of the Barleen's tastes like a lemon pudding. Mm, that sounds good. <laughs> the Core Omega it has like an orange flavor to it. And so, um, it, and this flavor is very, very strong. Now, when kids are very picky and have sensory issues, they tend not to like the strong flavors unless they happen to want that particular flavor that day. They're very brand specific and flavor specific. But a lot of kids like these because they're of the high flavor and um, they're easily obtained at Whole Foods or Wegmans or one of those, um, or, or a good health food store. That sounds great. I just want to finish off with two questions. And one is, first of all, I want to encourage everyone out there to get Kelly Dorfman's book, Cure Your Child with Food. It's a, it's a fantastic read. It's very easy to work with. It's a great workbook. So I want to put that plug in for your book. But you, in the book, you talk about uh, you've developed a program called EAT. Eliminate the irritant, add one new food a week, and eat one bite of a new food for two weeks. For those of you who are the picky eaters, so how does that work with your patients? Is, uh, are you finding it's um, making a difference with, with kids and families? Yes, it's eliminate, add, and try. And I just sort of made up an acronym just to give it a structure so people could remember it. But the basic principle, there's a couple, there's two or three basic principles that are very, very important. Number one is that almost nobody, um, if they're fussy about food, likes food the first time they taste it. Uh, you know, unless it's something really unusually sweet, like, I, uh, but even ice cream, sometimes picky eaters won't like because it's too cold. But it takes several tries to acclimate yourself to a new food. So parents often will try something and then the, the child doesn't like it and they say, oh, they didn't like it. And that's the end of it. Right. But it, it, but it takes time. And so you want to do one bite, the same food, then again, and then again. And it, it takes like 10 to 14 times. So I like 10 days to two weeks at least for the same food so that by the third or fourth day, you're not just reacting to it. You're actually thinking, oh, I know what's coming now, and let's see if it's any good, you know. And you can you can add it like that. So I think it's very important to realize you have to do it uh, multiple times and that food is an acclimated activity. Yeah, and, and the other thing is um, it's a structure so the child knows what to expect because there's a lot of food battles that go on uh, with eating these days because kids don't have a lot of autonomy they're a lot more regulated than it was when I grew up, you know, where we ran around town and, and checked in once a month, you know, and now the kids are watched every minute and they don't get to make a lot of decisions about their own life, but gosh darn it, they can close their mouth. And so it seems that food is the place where so many battles are taking place now. And so we want to give kids some regulation and control over what they eat, but we don't want to let them pick on, on their own because then the food companies take over and they end up uh, eating uh, crackers and pasta and sweets and cookies all day. So uh, so you, you want them to have a structure. You know, it's going to just be one bite of a new food, not eating through a whole cow, you know, not something unexpected. You know, you're going to know what to expect. And you, you let them choose to some extent 
you know, give them a choice of two things to try so they have some control that way. And then finally, um, I really talk a lot in the book about how you can kind of insist that they do it. People are so afraid to make any kind of requirements about eating as if it's going to instantly cause an eating disorder to develop. <laughs> but um, I've been told this so many times that it sounds extreme, but really people think that, that if they tell their kids you have to eat your vegetables, they're going to have a terrible eating disorder or that they're reliving their childhood and they don't want to do that to their own children. I don't know. I, when I grew up, my mom said, eat your vegetables, and you had to eat your vegetables. It's just the way was it was. Yeah, that's the way it was. You know, it's no different than making them tie their shoes or brush their teeth or go to school. It's just a family value or it's not. And so if you believe in brushing the teeth and, and eating a good diet, which I hope you do because it's really important for your child's health, then, of course, they need to eat these foods. And so you need to relax about it and realize you can insist they eat well. It's absolutely true. It makes a big, big difference in, in children's lives. In closing, for our listeners, for our parents out there, what are the first steps a parent could do in, in kind of becoming their own nutrition detective for their, for their child and for themselves as well? Well, the first step is always to observe and keep an eye on things. Like I was just talking to a mother this morning and she pretty much was convinced that her child had problems with gluten. He had a lot of stomach aches, but her husband wasn't convinced. So I said, we need some data. I said, why don't you write down how many stomach stomach aches there are in a week? Because when the stomach aches went away, when the child went off gluten, the husband said, well, he didn't have many. And this, and this is a very common, by the way, this is nothing wrong with the husband in this case. This is just the way we are about pain. When the tooth pain goes away, we forget. So uh, keeping records, especially if there's a number of kids and there's a lot going on, writing things down on an old calendar or something um, is, a, is a very good first step in terms of symptoms and keeping a record of what the child's eating and putting symptoms into it. That's a very good detective tool, just like a notebook that Sherlock Holmes might carry around. The second and I think final thing is follow your intuition. I mean, mostly the parents know before I tell them. So really trusting your intuition on it, even if... Really. If you, if you think it's a problem, it probably is. Well, I really, again, want to encourage people to get your book, Cure Your Child with Food by Kelly Dorfman, because it will really help you out and give you a lot of insight into what Kelly's talked about today. And people can learn more about Kelly Dorfman by going to her website, kellydorfman.com, or about her book at cureyourchildwithfood.com. And you can always become part of her community on Facebook at Kelly Dorfman. Kelly Dorfman, I want to thank you so much for being with us on Health Currents Radio today. I could have spent hours with you talking about food and health. It's been delightful. Thank you so much, Ellen. That's all for our show today. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, and I want to thank our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic in downtown Portland, Oregon. You can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. You can always listen to Health Currents Radio and find all of our past shows at healthcurrentsradio.com. Do subscribe to us on iTunes, and don't forget to write a review when you finish listening. It really helps us get the word out on the show. You can find us on the mobile app Stitcher, find us on Twitter at Pearl Natural, or join our community and like us on Facebook at Health Currents Radio. We want to know how you are transforming your life through your health.